the Media Society Podcast. Hello and welcome to the Media Society Podcast. I'm Paul Blanchard. Topics we'll be discussing around the table this time are the BBC is said to be axing one of its main TV channels. Could BBC Three or BBC Four be on the chopping block? A former Guardian journalist hopes to shake up the newsroom hierarchy at his digital magazine by allowing journalists to help hire their own editors. Is this wise? And Piers Morgan, with his show just being cancelled by CNN after dismal ratings, should he have done more to win over the Americans? Or was he unfairly discriminated against for being a Brit? Joining me around the table today are James Erskine, Strategy Director for Content Marketing Agency The Big Shot, and Andrew Caesar Gordon, Managing Director of Electric Airwaves, a specialist communications agency. Our first topic of discussion. The BBC is rumoured to be axing one of its main TV channels in order to save yet another £100 million. Though Director-General Tony Hall has refused to give any details, he said that he would rather make a hard decision than drastically reduce the budget for BBC dramas. And a formal announcement will be made in about a month, but insiders have said that it's either BBC Three or BBC Four that'll get the axe. James? I'm not really sure that it matters, because I think increasingly as we move forward... I think a channel is going to matter less and less anyway. And it will be the individual programmes, the content that will have to shine through beyond the channel. Because nobody's going to be watching linear TV soon. I know that's a grand statement. Are, I think, they, are they now? Well, <laughs> I am. So I'll, I'll watch, you know, yeah. X Factor and Live Sport with everybody else and, and talk about it on Twitter. But I think with BBC Three and BBC Four, if you take it right the way back to what the BBC is doing, both are doing jobs that the BBC in its Rethian belief should be doing. And both are doing jobs that perhaps the commercial sector might say that they're not. So BBC Three has really harrowing documentaries aimed at young people presented by Reggie Yates. And it also has a reality programme that's effectively the best hairdresser that's a bit like the Great British Bake Off. So they're both doing jobs. And, and BBC Four has, has incredible dramas and incredible history. Great science programs. shows as well. Exactly. Both doing jobs that, that they should and shouldn't be doing. So... Actually, I wonder whether the BBC and specifically Tony Hall have got it right to be looking to just chop a channel, whereas perhaps the salami slicing that has been going on could be more effective. Andrew, do you think that BBC Three should be for the chop, really? I mean, the BBC don't really get youth television, really, do they? Shouldn't they be put, moving the good programmes onto BBC Two and cutting that? Any channel which has a flagship programme called Snog Maria Void uh, clearly does, does understand uh, its uh, youth audience. Um, I think that uh, the context of uh, this decision is, is about cost-cutting in our age of austerity. He needs another £100 million pounds of uh, savings uh, to go with his £700 million. And um, he's been quite clear from a broad strategy perspective that he wants to drive iPlayer and that channels are less important than content and how people access that content and how the BBC maintains its reputation and brand in creating that content um, is is going to be key for the future. And one of the thing, interesting things they've done is uh, they've uh, actually, iPlayer has actually commissioned um, original drama for the first time, um, which will come out later this year. So um, whilst uh, the Daily Mail will no doubt uh, have a very strong view as to which channel should be axed, um, I think James is right. It's it's about how people consume the education, the information and the entertainment that the BBC is creating. 
that will um, ultimately define the success or otherwise of the BBC, not whether it's BBC Three that goes or BBC Four that goes. The problem I have with a lot of these kind of youth channels and youth programmes is they're often run by middle-aged men. Do you think the problem is that they actually don't know how to connect with you know youth audiences? It were. I, mean, I was lucky enough to have a tour around uh, Radio One a few months ago and met with the uh, the controller there and a lot of the senior team. And whilst they were all cool and you know dressed well and everything, you couldn't get round the fact that they were all middle-aged and white. Andrew, do you think that that is an issue, that they're inevitably going to end up patronising young people by saying, hey, kids, this is what you should be watching? I think it's inevitable, isn't it, that um, the people who lead organisations are going to be people who are experienced and um, find themselves uh, fighting the the last war rather than the current one. Um, (laughs) You're being incredibly careful here, aren't you? I can can see it in your face. (laughs) Ah, I just love all people. Um, I think that the BBC often gets criticised for hiring a lot of people who are um, at the younger end of the experience spectrum and uh, that's where a lot of the political criticism, uh, for instance, about the, the BBC being a, a, having a left-wing bias comes from. You know, these idealistic people with their metropolitan, cosmopolitan ways who kind of don't really understand the way the world works and uh, they're infecting uh, the, the thinking of, uh, of the BBC listenership. The people who run it will be the people who run it. So you're supposed to respond to audience demand. The trouble with the BBC is that it doesn't it isn't as finely attuned to consumer demand mm. as the commercial networks. So it can persevere with um things that you and I might consider to be absolute rubbish because it uh, fits with a charter or something like Speak that. For yourself, Andrew, um, I love Snog Murray and Boy. <laughs> <laughs> I've never seen it really, I, I am fibbing. And I certainly wouldn't score you uh, right now. <laughs> um so I think that yeah, again, it's 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 down to um something that James alluded to, which is the the, the, the rivalry between the BBC and, and the commercial sector, which will Will um, will play out to a certain extent here. But James, do you think that that is an issue? That there are just certain things that the BBC shouldn't be making and should leave to the commercial sector. Yes, in short, I absolutely think that. Going back to where whether it is BBC Three or BBC Four, I think the big test is actually just coming round the corner, which is when BBC Radio One, which is a proven brand, a brand that does connect with youth on a pretty impressive way, comes to the iPlayer. So it stops being radio and it becomes a brand in its own right. And then I think the BBC is going to have real questions to answer in what's the difference between these two networks, BBC Three and BBC Radio One, both of which are reaching out to young people and both of which have pretty chunky budgets behind them. So when you say coming to iPlayer, forgive me, I don't know, do you, do you mean in terms of visual? Yes, it's already, right, exactly. Okay, I didn't so know this, right? Yeah, so there'll be cameras in the studio, which there is a lot of already. So Nick Grimshaw, if you take as, as an example, he's um, increased, albeit from a lower base than his predecessor, the Radio 1 listenership, and that's been put down to his use of social media and the way that he is connecting with the youthful audience. So it does show that at least somebody at the BBC is managing to do that. Now, it does show that there's a way to connect with youth audiences that is being masterminded by the BBC. And if you take a microcosm of the Radio 1 Breakfast Show, maybe using that sort of approach is a way to deliver BBC content across social channels. And iPlayer and video is going to be key with Radio 1's progression and therefore, I think, the BBC's. I mean, I personally don't really listen to the radio anymore. I occasionally like to listen to Jeremy Vine on Radio 2 if I'm driving along, but most of the time I will listen to curated content, but it will be via Spotify or it will be a podcast. So, for example, I love the news quiz, but I've never, ever listened to it at 6.30 on a Friday night when it's on Radio 4 because it's always on podcast. Andrew, do you actually listen to the radio anymore? 
Um, I used to run a radio production company, um, and uh, we made beautiful programmes for for the BBC. Um, and <laughs> to the extent that I sold it, because it was just so uneconomic to uh, actually do it. Um, so I'll declare that interest now. Um, <laughs> but no, I, I don't. I don't listen to to the radio live much. There's a lot of information out there, and what you do is you seek out brands and. Uh, platforms that suits your your lifestyle. So I do look at the BBC website a lot, BBC News website, but I don't listen to um, to Radio Four nearly as much as uh, I used to in my in my former days. I you know am of the view that you know, the BBC is in a very difficult position, and yet it is in a with the politicians and, and and the regulatory environment, but it is loved in this country a bit like the NHS. You know, another mm. institution which doesn't really work that well and. Uh, has a lot of critics, but uh, nonetheless is uh, held close to the people's hearts and is a very trusted news brand in particular. Uh, I, I employ about 70 journalists to, to do our communications training at Electric Airwaves, and uh, I have yet to find any uh, BBC uh, journalist who, who does work with me. I'm kind of in the least bit bothered whether BBC Three or BBC Four goes or Six Extra goes. What they want to see is more money in the newsmaking budget. And so many people would say that you know, the BBC's prime purpose is actually news gathering and dissemination. Um, that where is this one hundred million pounds of savings going to go? Drama. Mm. We can find decent drama on uh, on ITV somewhere yeah, but, these days. But not Sherlock. Come on. No. I mean, we, we need to know what's going to happen. I mean, Benedict Cumberbatch is a living god. Uh, yes, I agree. He is a living god. There we are. I've not watched Sherlock. And he lives two streets away from me as well. I'm always seeing him in Tesco's. Well, There's you're a, name a very for lucky you. man. I am. I nearly <laughs> went up to him the other night and said, you're Sherlock, but... I thought that would uh, that wouldn't go down well, and he would have known it already. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> um, so I should declare an interest to at this point, and that is I sit on the board of a of a business called the Digital Audio Network, and what they do is they sell advertising across a number of different independent podcasts. So the thinking being that the Spurs Show or Homo Lab, who have relatively few downloads every month, uh, can't sell advertising to advertisers because they're too small. But when you group them all up, they do do that job. And so therefore, like you, my time adjusted listening and indeed people's time adjusted listening is huge. And and I think that's very much the way that things are going in terms of listening to the radio. I think going back to BBC Three and BBC Four and the drama budget. I think oh, yes, a, that's where we started, wasn't it? it I love is. these podcasts and we always get off on a tangent. <laughs> I think the, ga- the gaping chasm and, and if you like, the, the obviousness of this all is there are no daytime programmes on BBC Two anymore. And BBC Four has had its budget slashed dramatically. So putting what currently is on BBC Four, it might be a slightly kind of square peg in a round hole, but onto BBC Two daytime suddenly probably solves the battle and the BBC can get away with the uh, headline of it axing a channel, albeit the wrong one for the Daily Mail. I declare an interest as a a, a soon-to-be old person, but I love BBC Four. It's brilliant. The science stuff and the art stuff is fantastic. It's BBC Three that I don't watch apart from Family Guy and American Dad because it's just all youth programming and I'm not I, a young anymore. But it's it's tougher for the commercial sector to make money from youth programming for the rules around advertising to kids so there's an, more of an argument for the BBC to be doing it. So although, although of course the counter argument is they can target teenagers but what they should be doing is CBB. So as the father of a soon to be two year old 
Um, I know the value of CBBS and how it works. It's a tremendous replacement for parenting for at least one hour. Every I can day. assure you that by the time they get to six, they've moved on to Nickelodeon and Disney, <laughs> and uh, they want anything to do with that silly stuff. Where are the adverts that where we can get pester power really down to a fine art? Former Guardian journalist Glenn Greenwald, known for breaking a series of stories on NSA surveillance, has launched The Intercept, a digital magazine with hopes of innovating and improving journalism, he says. He says that the traditional newsroom hierarchy can cause obstacles with editors blocking stories. Instead, he wants editors and journalists to collaborate with journalists hiring their own editors. Is this new structure the way forward? Andrew? Um, if you want a media that's just a series of platforms for polemicists, then uh, I'm sure it is. Here, here. Um, I agree with you already. Next topic. <laughs> <laughs> I think that, uh, I mean, I don't know, Mr. Greenwald, um, but, you know, it strikes me as one more disgruntled journalist, and I've met a lot of those, who think that their editors don't get them. Equally, I don't know that very many journalists, reporters, get editors. Um, editors have a, have a wide range of uh, roles in a, in a news organisation. It's an inherently um, tense relationship, isn't it? Well, I think, you know, the, the, your average reporter's uh, starting point for what they do is to ask questions and you know the the first question is why is this liar lying to me <laughs> whereas the editor um has to a remove the word liar from the um script for fear of uh, a libel action and um secondly has to convince uh, some other people that um yes this uh, is is a story that stands up and then has to help the journalist sort of the reporter put the puzzle together and then go and find the artwork and the and all the rest of it that uh, kind of makes the, makes a story of interest to an audience. There's a reason why editors tend to kind of go through a separate route than reporters, and it's because their skill sets are, are different. And you won't probably find an editor who will give you everything that you want as a reporter, and equally I'm sure that there are reporters who don't give everything that an editor wants. Isn't that the issue, though, from the journalist's point of view, is you want an editor that will challenge you, won't you? I mean, if, you, if you've got an editor that's just going to nod through everything you put through, then there's no point having an editor. Well, I don't think that's Greenwald's point. Um, his is that he gets challenged too much and um, thinks that... Uh, they're too risk-averse. They're, they're, they're too risk-averse and that uh, corporations and politicians lean on media organisations. Why he thinks that his star journalism and, uh, and a billionaire uh, tech mogul um, will mean that uh, he'll be able to write differently as the organisation grows, I don't know. Um, you know, I, I looked at uh, The Intercept today and... It's kind of striking just how one-dimensional it is. But the top story is, uh, at the time I read it, him writing a piece in rebuttal to those who had accused him of um, taking the uh, the billionaire's money when the billionaire had just been revealed to be funding alleged you know, democracy campaigners in Ukraine. And uh, his, uh, his take on this was, I, I no more ask uh, what my... Uh, uh, media moguls' uh, politics are than I asked uh, what the politics were of the owners of the Guardian Trust. Well, neither of these are irrelevant to the issue of, you know, if you produce a story, does it stand up and mm. is it of interest to an audience? Um, there is a lot of content out there. And one of the things about media fragmentation, segmentation, is that you can pick and choose what you want. So if you like, like a, a right-wing tint to your uh, to your broadcast coverage and you're in America, then Fox News is the, is the one for you. If it's not, then, hey, head off to <laughs> mm. NSBC. So um, I think that he wants to get to the truth, and he wants to get to the audience without anybody being in his way. The interesting thing about reading his current content is how it is very different to um, what I would expect to read in The Guardian or, or any newspaper as written by a reporter. It is editorial. 
It is opining and yes. asserting polemic. and polemic. Yeah. And I personally don't think that's what I want from a newspaper, mm. but maybe that's what I would want from, let's call it a newsletter, um, because I wish to have my prejudices confirmed. James, do you think there is an issue there that when there's a story happening and you have a choice whether to buy The Sun or The Guardian or The Telegraph, not only do you want to know the story, but you're deliberately choosing the lens through which you want that story to be judged. Yes, completely. So I am an occasional Guardian reader, I'm an occasional independent reader, I'm an occasional Times reader, and I know the sort of tone in which those different publications are going to talk to me. I also love an occasional essay, an occasional polemic from various columnists across those and other publications. Of course. And I love a rant as much as the next person. But I think you're exactly right. It's a very different beast to step all over Andrew's point between a rant, a polemic and what a newspaper does. Isn't it just that, like me, for example, I read two or three newspapers during the day, but I also read three or four blogs regularly and they're just all in the mix. It doesn't really matter where it's from, really, as long as I trust the content. Sometimes I even like to read a newspaper that challenges me so that it might, you know, I, I read The Guardian, but I often disagree with a lot of what it says, but that's, that's exactly what you do read it for, really. I'll never forget my granddad, who would exclusively watch programmes he disagreed with. Um, he was a cantankerous Yorkshireman purely to frown, shout and snarl at the television. And I'm inheriting that as I get older. I, I alternate between the New Statesman and the Spectator and I, and I, I won't say which one um, makes me rant or, or snarl or get angry more, but equally, they're, they're both kind of extreme in their, in their own ways. So certainly, I, I love to be challenged. I think it's interesting if you take a trusted media brand like the Financial Times, who are dealing in information for the business and finance community who, for whom time is very important. And so you have to ask yourself, is there a point in time in the future where the audience for the FT aren't interested in reading in a print edition what happened yesterday because they need to deal in that information right here and right now? So that's why FT.com has been so successful and FT Alphaville has been so successful. But maybe there could be a point in time in the future where the Financial Times becomes a publication that's solely op-ed pieces and uh, interesting columnists that the power of the FT brand means there's of interest to, to its audience. James, on a morning when I get up, the first website I check is the BBC News website because, as Andrew just said then, it doesn't actually have any opinion. It might not look at the world through the lens through which I want it to, but on the other hand, I do trust its editorial judgment to kind of find out, look, what are the facts? You know, who won best Oscar for X, Y and Z? What is actually happening in the Crimea at the moment? Um, but then when I open my copy of The Times or The Telegraph or The Guardian, I'm looking for something different. I'm looking for their interpretation. Do you think there is a... Do you think Andrew's right that eventually they're going to split, perhaps, that I'll look to the BBC for purely for news and then I will go to what might become the independent where it will purely be a newspaper? Do you think that's inevitable? I, I think it's likely, and I think you're finding lots of different uh, magazines, newspapers and indeed websites fall into one of those two camps. BuzzFeed's business model of looking at creating brand-funded content, Love which BuzzFeed. sits alongside their journalist content and their listicles as well. We've got one of the editors of BuzzFeed coming on in a couple of weeks, actually. Tremendous. So we'll best praise them. <laughs> oh, well, of course, and, they're, and, they're, and the job that they do is great. Now, how this commercial content will sit alongside their 
other content, their editorial content, will be really fascinating. And and I'm sure you will ask questions along those lines when, when they're on. I think the thing about BuzzFeed for me is it just draws into very sharp focus how lazy I am. I like the fact that it breaks any story down into 18 points, mm-hmm. you know, in bold, in, in two lines. This is what you need to know. You also need to know this. I'd agree. And... It will be interesting to see where Intercept ends up. So will it be looking for commercial content? Will they be looking to deliver sponsored articles? Will that sacrifice his journalistic credentials? Because at the end of the day, there will have to be a commercial play somewhere along the line. And on to my favourite topic of this podcast, Piers Morgan. His primetime chat show has just been cancelled by CNN after his ratings fell to as low as 270,000 viewers. Oh, well, we'd have to have a cut in our listenership to get to that. Hundreds of thousands of Americans have signed a petition to have him deported after he called for stricter gun control regulations following that school shooting. And critics have said that Piers should have done more to endear himself to the American audiences. He should have shown more appreciation for the culture and he might have been a tad more successful. Is that a fair criticism or is America just an inhospitable place for us Brits when it comes to journalism? James, what do you think? I, at this stage, need to confess something and not many people say this out loud. But I would like to publicly state that I like some of, not all of, but some of Piers Morgan's work. I like him. I think he's great. Before he went to America, before he was TV's Piers Morgan, he wrote, I think it was The Insider's Diaries, about his time editing both The News of the World and The Mirror. Yeah. And it was... And well before that, when he wrote the Bizarre column for The Sun. Exactly. Which is the springboard for every editor in the <laughs> News International these days. And if if people haven't read it, it's, it's absolutely tremendous. Um, the, the bit about Rupert Murdoch being in the background, knowing everything that's going on, but only popping up immediately, like some kind of ghost or, or dark overlord figure, is just fascinating. And it makes a thoroughly good read. Now... You counter that with his smug, oily TV persona, and you kind of, particularly on ITV... I think ITV, that's just his persona, actually. I don't think I, that's I think maybe. for TV. <laughs> I think, I think that could be the I've met him quite case. a few times, actually. See, he is like I, that in real life. Oh, well, fair enough. You see, I never have. I've, I've heard him give good value as a panellist on Radio 5 Live. I've seen him give some decent soccer insight, and I use that word because he gives soccer insight on American TV quite a lot, talking about Arsenal and a few other clubs on on Fox Soccer, so I've seen him on that. But on ITV, that interview programme he does, I think he's oily and dreadful. The other thing to say on this is that CNN have not lost complete faith in Piers Morgan. He, as far as we're aware, they are looking for other projects for him to do, and he was anchoring their Oscars coverage earlier this week. So it does show that there is still some mileage in CNN's relationship with Piers Morgan. Do you think the fact he was interviewed under caution uh, might be a significant factor? (laughs) I think certainly that that won't have helped his uh, public persona in America at all. I also think people forget the political landscape in America. People presume that the Democrats are a bit like our Labour Party. And they're not. They're not at all. Not at all. And Piers Morgan preaching to middle America about gun control and actually bringing his, for America, relatively left-wing views Mm. to the centre of American consciousness, I think that was always going to jar. And I think he probably should have done something to modify his act a little bit. Andrew, do you think that CNN aren't to blame here, that they're just responding to the fact that his audience has been vastly cut to a shadow of what, when, it, when Larry King ran it? Yeah, it's a little bit um, worrying, isn't it, if you are 
the the paymasters that uh, this high profile decision that you made leaving or going on from Larry King moving on is um uh, hasn't hasn't worked out at all for you and your presenter keeps on making gaffes but i think that if you just look at the large number of brits who won the oscars recently shows you that uh, brits are still loved in hollywood and uh, i think that um, it's it's less about uh, you being British than about how a foreigner abroad behaves. I don't know too many Brits who take kindly to Americans uh, bad-mouthing uh, the British culture. So um, I think it does come down fundamentally to Piers Morgan himself. And uh, James has kind of mentioned his football uh, interests. Uh, I'm a cricket fan myself and his interventions during the uh, Ashes tour. Uh, the best one was when he um, challenged Brett Lee to bowl an over at him and uh, broken wrist, a broken rib, an uh, egg on the back of his head and uh, uh, falling over uh, and didn't even see the balls, I, I, I thought was uh, the best part of it, uh, as did the 2,000 baying Australian fans uh, who were watching at the net uh, when that happened. So, yes, the, the cock of the walk has become a feather duster, but only he made himself into a feather duster. It was nobody else. Do you think it would have failed whoever would have presented it then, that people go to CNN because they just want rolling news in their hotel room and they don't want to sit and have someone interviewed for a, a, an hour or so? Well, it didn't fail when Larry King was running it. Um, it failed when Piers Morgan was running it. So I don't think it's about the nature of whether you're a Brit or an American, whether you're left-wing or right-wing in outlook. Um, you just want someone who's a decent presenter and Piers Morgan is not a very good TV presenter. James? Larry King's ratings were on a slide. They were slightly artificially inflated because he announced he was retiring about a year before he retired. Mm -hmm. So what that meant was everybody was tuning in because they thought it could be one of the last times they see Larry King. So it, it was a clever uh, it was a clever way for Larry King to go, but also it did give to that kind of artificial spike, if you like. The other question you asked at the top of this bit was, is the USA a bad place for British talent to succeed? And there are some quite a lot, actually, high profile failures at the moment. So Steve Jones on the X Factor, Cheryl Cole didn't even make the mm. past the audition phase. And she was one of the judges on the X Factor in America. <laughs> um, uh, and Johnny Vaughan never got in the country. That said, there are there are those that kind of go under the radar. So believe it or not, Kat Dealey, I only know this from having been to America relatively recently, is all over one of the dancing shows in America. Not my personal choice, my wife and my two-year-old boys. But um, but yeah, she's a big presenter there. So there are, there are some UK talent that are succeeding and delivering in America. And I think these things are cyclical. I really do. So it's just Piers personally then, I think that can be the conclusion? I think so, yeah. What do you think's next for him? He could come back here. I could see TalkSport would bite his arm off. They love a controversial personality. Is uh, it big enough for him after CNN? I, I think it could be. I mean, um, famous high-profile people that have left bigger jobs, not mentioning any Richard Keyses or Andy Grays, have thrived on TalkSport and gone on to get other television work on the back of it. I also actually think, just on a, on a radio kind of thought, American syndicated radio, he could be tremendous at. I mean, there are some really big personalities that cover many, many, many territories in the States. And I think that could be a really good shout for him uh, across um, subscription radio or even, uh, even networked FM radio out in the States. Or just more ITV dross. Who knows? Andrew, do you think there's a place from here? Do you think he'll come back? I don't think he's going to come back in America. And when his contract with CNN expires in September, I don't think we'll see any of those projects having come to fruition either. So I'm, I'm sure that, yes, there is a 
a place somewhere in the media for for Piers Morgan. Uh, I don't expect to hear him taking over the editorship of a national British newspaper. I don't expect to see him taking over from Hugh Edwards, um, but he will be somewhere, I'm sure, if only on his own Twitter feed where he's continued to insult people and uh, show no empathy whatsoever with them. Gentlemen, just before we close, I'll give you the opportunity to tell the listeners your Twitter handles and so on and so forth. How can people, James, use the electric interweb to get in touch with you and stalk you? So on Twitter, uh, me personally, I am at James Erskine, which is Erskine with an E on the end, E-R-S-K-I-N-E. And then, As in the bridge? Yes, the bridge in Scotland, very well observed. Not many people know about that bridge. Neither uh, did I until you said it earlier. <laughs> and then um, uh, you can have a look at what the Big Shot are up to, the agency that I work for, at Big Shot Tweet. Um, singular. Okay, and what's the website for The Big Shot? It's thebigshot.co.uk and you can see all manner of the work that we get up to for brands, both creating um, content for brands and also integrating that content across target media. I was going to ask you for a quick elevator pitch as to what you did, but that sounds quite good. So very interesting indeed. Andrew? Well, you can find out uh, what Electric Airwaves does by going to our website, uh, electricairwaves.com, and learn about how we help our clients uh, with story development and communications training and crisis planning. Uh, We work with about 40 of the FTSE 100 and many, many media brands as well. We teach people what to say and how to say it. And if you'd like to look at some uh, case studies, that tends to be what we tweet at our at Electric Airwave handle on uh, Twitter. And what's your personal Twitter? I don't have one because my whole life is bound up in my company. Oh, God, so's mine. That's, that, that's such a tragedy. If anyone wants to follow me and my meaningless life, it's at Paul W.R. Blanchard. But more importantly than all of that, please do follow the Media Society on our Twitter. We tweet breaking media news and links to all of our events and various shenanigans that we get involved with. That's at the Media Society. Finally, please consider joining the Media Society. Go to our website, www.themediasociety.com, where you can join for the bargain price of £60, just £5 a month, where you can interact with the great and the good and learn cutting-edge media thought. I don't know what that means either, but it sounds very, very good. But do join us. We've got lots of interesting events where you can network, learn best practice and chat to your peers. This has been the Media Society podcast. See you next time. A Big Things Media Production. Big Things!